Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come into this place as we open your word, and that he would do what he promises to do, that he would awaken dead eyes to new life, and that we would be moved to love and serve you with all that we are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. A few weeks back, we looked at the first part of the story of Jonah. I said then, and it bears repeating today, that we must be careful in how we approach this book. It was Thomas John Carlyle who said these important words, I was so obsessed by what was going on inside the whale that I missed what was going on, the real drama, inside of Jonah. So often we, we get hung up on the whale in this story, and the, the whale's really all that we can remember of Jonah. But as I said last time that we looked at this, the book of Jonah has much more to say than merely the truth that God can cause a man to survive in the belly of a fish for three days. Last time we looked at some of the great lessons from this wonderful little book. If you haven't read Jonah before, if you've never read the first couple chapters, you need to know that Jonah was a great prophet in Israel. He had a great track record, actually, as a prophet. He had uh, preached, and through his ministry, God had expanded the borders of Israel. But at the start of the book of Jonah, we saw that God commanded this great Israelite prophet to, to leave Israel and to go to Israel's enemies, right into the lion's den, right into the capital of Assyria, Nineveh, and to preach to them. And in the first part of Jonah's story, he deliberately disobeys God. He goes on the run, and God does several things with Jonah. First, remarkably, he lets Jonah go. And then he also lets Jonah experience some measure of the consequences of his sin. But finally, when Jonah's disobedience brings uh, him literally down into the depths of the sea, it's at that last moment before he expires beneath the waves that God appoints a fish and swallows Jonah and saves his beloved prophet. Well, in our passage this morning, we come to the rest of the story. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, and this time, Jonah doesn't run away from the call of God. He goes right into the pagan city and preaches exactly what God had given him to say. And wonder of wonders, the entire city is converted. From top to bottom, the people repent. The king himself orders that everyone turn from their evil way and to turn to the Lord. And the third chapter of Jonah ends with the Lord accepting the repentance of the people of Nineveh. He forgives them. And it's right at this moment that we expect this great saga to come to a close. I think if Jonah was a movie, it'd be right at this point that you expect Jonah to head off into the sunset, back into his home country as the, the conquering hero. After all, Jonah's the protagonist who learns his lesson and ultimately saves the day. Disasters avoided, and we can all go home happy. That's what we expect to happen. And it's no wonder that the majority of children's Bibles that I've come across, they end Jonah's story right there. And I wonder if you have heard of Jonah or have any familiarity with Jonah, how you end the story in your own mind before today. 
Well, we come to Jonah 4, and we get the end of the story. Jonah, is, Jonah 4 is the punchline of the entire book. As Carlyle said, the real drama all along has been this progression in the heart of Jonah, what's happening inside of him. And this last chapter is one of the most honest, most realistic chapters in all of the Bible. I think that's why it's included. And in it, we see three great lessons that God wanted Jonah to learn. And he wants you and I to learn these same three lessons this morning. So turn with me to the Jonah passage, and let's look at these three lessons at the end of Jonah's story. When the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, as I said, he didn't run in the opposite direction. He went to where God called him. And I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that he did exactly what God told him to do. He went right to Nineveh, and he preaches a sermon, and the whole city is converted. Now, pretty much any preacher I know, that's just a dream scenario right there, that you can't get any better than Jonah's preaching and sermon. The entire city is converted. Evil is forsaken. Idols are destroyed. Violence and injustice, they're traded in for righteousness and holiness. On the surface, Jonah was perfectly obedient to God's call the second time, but, but let's look at how things are going with Jonah at the start of chapter 4. Churches in Nineveh are packed, and Jonah is perturbed. Verse 1 tells us that of all of all this displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And Jonah goes on to say, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and resenting from disaster. I knew you were like this. We finally get the real reason why Jonah ran away to begin with. Jonah knew that God was going to do the very thing that Jonah didn't want him to do, and he's furious now about it. Jonah, Jonah has done on the surface exactly what God wanted, but what lies underneath his external obedience is a heart that is far from the Lord. Here in chapter 4, Jonah is deep down as far from God's will as he was when he skipped town for Tarshish. That's the first lesson that I want you to see this morning, that it's, it's possible to be externally obedient to God and yet still be completely lost. This is a lesson that Jesus himself would teach many years later in one of his most famous parables. We tend to associate the story with the younger brother, but it's a story of a man who has two sons. The younger brother insults his father by demanding his share of the inheritance prematurely, and he takes that money and runs off and spends it all on reckless living. And he finds himself at the bottom of the barrel and comes to his senses eventually and decides to, to go back home. And before he makes it home, he finds out that his father's actually already coming after him. He's already running to meet him. And the father embraces his son. He calls for a ring and the best robe to be put on his son. And he throws one of the biggest parties you can imagine. And like Jonah, we tend to end Jesus' parable right there. But what comes next, just like in Jonah 4 is the punchline of Jesus' parable. The older brother, he's out in the fields, 
and all of a sudden he hears this commotion going on. And when he finds out that his younger brother has returned and that his father has thrown this huge celebration, he becomes angry. He refuses to go into the celebration. What I want you to see is that this older brother and Jonah are spitting images of one another. Both are stomping mad when grace has been shown. Both are self-righteous and end up sulking on the outside when in actuality they should be right in the middle of the celebration. The point of the parable and one of the main points of the book of Jonah is that there are two ways of being lost. It's easy to spot the, the lostness in the younger brother. He does all the obvious bad things. It's easy to see how Jonah in the beginning of the book is, is lost. What's harder to see, and yet equally true, is just how lost the older brother is. It wasn't his bad actions that, that separated him from God. It was actually all his good deeds that had separated him from his father's will. On the surface, the older brother, he's done everything right. But when you probe and look into his heart, you find that he didn't care much for his father or his younger brother. He cared more about his father's stuff, the fattened calf, the robe, the, the remainder of that inheritance, more than he cared for either his brother or his father. The reason we know that the older brother and his condition is the punchline of the story is because Jesus was speaking right to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they're the religious ones in Jesus' day. And Jesus saved some of his harshest words for these religious types who by their outward obedience looked fine, but inwardly they were self-righteous, hard-hearted. I hope, I hope you can see these two ways of being lost, these two ways of rebelling against God. Jonah is actually rebellious in both parts of the story, but his rebellion at the end, in chapters 3 and 4, it's far more insidious. It isn't easily seen because it's, it's a matter of the heart. Let me ask you this morning, how's your heart? It can be so easy, I think, to do all the, the right things, to go to church, to give sacrificially, to serve on a team, and before you know it, we've subtly come to feel superior to others. We can even believe deep down, like Jonah or the older brother, that because of who we are and what we've done, God owes us something. He must do what we please. Jonah, he does all the right things in chapter 3, but look at his heart in chapter 4, and it's just as far from the Lord as it was at the start. And that's the first lesson we see this morning, that it's possible to be outwardly obedient and yet still be in rebellion against God. The second lesson has to do with how God responds to Jonah's self-righteousness. Jonah is outraged at God for showing mercy to Nineveh. Anger, by the way, is always the, the telltale sign of a hard heart, one that's filled with pride and self-righteousness. In Jonah's anger, he complains and he accuses God and he throws back at God God's very word. And then just as he did with the sailors, he asked to die. And as the chapter unfolds, you can't help but get the sense that Jonah is being portrayed a bit like a, a toddler throwing a, a temper tantrum. He's angry, he's, he's dramatic, he's very vocal, and he's intensely honest. 
What does God do with his petulant prophet? Our second lesson this morning is that God will use both his kindness and his severity in order to expose the sinful heart of his beloved children. Notice in marked contrast to Jonah's tantrum, God calmly yet directly asks, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Literally, do you have any right to be angry? You know, whenever God asks questions in the Bible, it's not like he's trying to find new information. Instead, his questions are always an invitation to his children to more deeply engage with him. Certainly, his questions are intended to be a means of self-examination, but more than that, they're ultimately an invitation for a deeper relationship with God. Well, Jonah answers with a loud silence. He storms out of the city, goes up on a nearby hill, and sits down sulking outside to see if God is going to perhaps destroy Nineveh. And what does God do? Look at verses 6 through 8. He gives Jonah this sort of enacted parable with this plant. And in God's actions, we see both his kindness and his severity. Verse 6 says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. I think this is the most remarkable act of kindness in the whole story of Jonah. After everything Jonah has done, after physical and emotional and verbal defiance that Jonah has done in God's face, God still holds Jonah this tenderly. Jonah's all alone outside the city in the hot desert in modern-day Iraq. There would have been very limited uh, material to build any sort of shelter. And having just been to the Middle East this summer, I can personally attest just how hot the summer sun is. Unlike here in Charleston, it actually matters if you're in the shade or not. This plant that God so kindly gives, notice it does wonders for Jonah's attitude. For the very first time in the whole story, Jonah's happy. He didn't like the commission at first to go to Nineveh, so he ran away. He didn't like the storm that God threw at him, so uh, he also didn't like being swallowed in, in a fish, I could imagine, and he also didn't really like going back or being told to go back to Nineveh. He certainly wasn't happy when they repented, but now, finally, at last, he's happy. No doubt Jonah is finally pleased because after all the compassion that God has shown to everyone else, finally, God is doing something for Jonah. But Jonah, he doesn't connect the dots between God's kindness to him and God's kindness to the people of Nineveh. Jonah should have known that God's kindness was intended to lead him to repentance. Instead, it only comforts him more as he eagerly awaits to see if God's going to blow Nineveh to smithereens. So when God's kindness wasn't enough, God gets rough with Jonah, just as he did back in chapter 1, where he hurled this great storm at Jonah in order to, to get his attention. And notice, sometimes what God needs to wake us up from our rebellion, is maybe it's as big as a, a mighty storm. Other times it might be as small as a, a little worm. All he needs is whatever's at his disposal. Either way, Jonah teaches us that God is intimately involved in the details of our lives, and he's going to do what he pleases to draw us closer to himself. 
Well, the next morning when God appoints a worm and a wind to destroy the plant, Jonah is, is undone. Once more, Jonah asks to die, and God says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And it's as if Jonah can't hear how ridiculous he sounds. He says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Why, why did God do this whole thing with the plant? What, what's the point behind it? Is he just being cruel to Jonah? No, he's not being cruel. The point behind both the gift of the plant and the destruction of the plant was to expose the pettiness, the, the selfishness inside of Jonah's heart. It was to get Jonah to see himself as he really was. And God is going to use his severity or his kindness to put his finger right on the issue in Jonah's heart until Jonah's ready to face it himself. At the start of the chapter, Jonah wanted to die because God did not conform to his narrow view of salvation, but now Jonah is angry enough to die because his precious little plant has withered. You can see just how ridiculous his self-absorption has become. Through the gift of the plant, and then also in the severity of the, the worm and the wind, Jonah's pettiness becomes very clear. And that's precisely what God intended in this whole debacle. Our, our first lesson this morning is that Jonah is more lost than he thinks. The second lesson is that God is both kind and severe in order to expose the real heart of Jonah. And finally, and our last lesson this morning, and perhaps the biggest lesson in the whole book of Jonah, is that God's compassion and mercy were more scandalous, more disturbing to Jonah than he was ready for. You see, underneath all of Jonah's misery was his disdain for the people of Nineveh. As one author put it, the real worm that was eating away at Jonah's soul was the reality that God was showing his mercy on Jonah's enemies. And that was a pill Jonah's pride couldn't swallow. In the book, it closes with a cliffhanger. It, it ends with God asking Jonah a question. He says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor. Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? Jonah's biggest problem was that he did not see the world the way God saw the world. That was his biggest problem. God's compassion toward Nineveh was scandalous to Jonah. It was offensive. And we shouldn't dismiss Jonah here too quickly lest we are quick to wag our fingers at Jonah. Listen to how the prophet Nahum described Nineveh at this time. He said, Nineveh is a city full of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without its victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over corpses. All because of the wanton lust of the harlot, alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her witchcraft. It's quite a description of a, of a people. Nineveh's evil was no trivial thing. And honestly, had Jonah known that in 40 years, these same people, the Assyrians, would, would destroy, come in and, and overthrow the land of Israel he would have probably been more offended at what God was doing here in Nineveh. 
So we shouldn't be quick to write off Jonah because if, if you and I are honest, we are very similar to Jonah. The fact of the matter is, in our heart of hearts, there are people, even here in this great city of Charleston, that we don't like. There are people whose choices, whose way of life we might find offensive, maybe for even the best possible reason. Maybe it's because their choices blatantly belittle others, or maybe they, they blatantly disregard God's law. If we're honest, there are, are some people we'd really rather not God bring into the fold, at least not here, not, not in our pew, right? It would just be a lot easier if we didn't have to deal with, with their baggage, with their smell, with their messed up relationships. The challenge of the book of Jonah to us this morning is can we view the world and those in it the way that God views them? Are we able to extend forgiveness to all without discrimination and rejoice when all kinds of people come to repent of their sin? Back in the 1960s, something very similar to what was happening in Nineveh happened in California. God was bringing young people by the droves to faith in Christ. But these young people, let's just say they, they weren't exactly kosher. They were hippies. They were obsessed with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They would travel around in groups, and they would often be barefoot, and you'd see signs popping up everywhere that said, bare feet not welcome. And at the time, there was a tiny little chapel called Calvary Chapel with a pastor named Chuck Smith. And Chuck Smith was confronted with a serious dilemma. There were these young folks who were hungry for God and who, who wanted to come to church, but then there were those in his congregation who thought that might be a little too much. Well, what eventually happened was Smith posted a sign on the door of his church that said, bare feet welcome. And what ensued was nothing short of a spiritual revolution. I think the most remarkable thing to me about the story of Jonah is, is how God loves both Jonah and Nineveh equally. His love and His mercy is both for the righteous, the, the kind of Jonah types, the, or the the self-righteous, the Jonah types, but also for the unrighteous, the Ninevites, people who know they're far from the Lord. He has mercy for both kinds of rebellion. Well, you might be like me and wondering, did Jonah actually learn anything from these lessons? Did he get the point? The truth is, the text, it doesn't say. It's because the author is less concerned about if Jonah got the point and more concerned if you and I got the point. Are we ready to have compassion on the world the way God does? But for those of us who just want to know, I think we can make a reasonable guess. All we have to do is ask, who told this story? It was Jonah, of course. After all, you have to be a prophet to get your uh, book in the Bible. What kind of man would write down for the whole world to see all of his own defiance, all of his anger, all of his prejudice. Who in the world would do such a thing? I would submit to you this morning that only a man who has learned these lessons that we've talked about could tell this kind of story about himself. 
It takes someone who has moved from bitterness and resentment to joy and security, which can only be found when you discover that God's mercy is scandalous to you. The more you see God's mercy to you as being offensive, as being crazy, the more humble you will become, the more excited you will be to join in His mission in saving the world. The more you see just how scandalous His love is towards you, the more it will change your life. The hymn that we just sang captures the transformation, I think, that happened in Jonah's life. I think at the beginning of the book, there's no way he could have written these words, but I think by the end, when he actually puts pen to paper, I think these could have been just from his own mouth. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last has won my affections and bound my soul fast. I think it was the theme of Jonah's song. What's the theme of your song this morning? I pray that it would be the lavish, the scandalous mercy of God shown to you in Jesus Christ, who offers himself for the forgiveness of your sins and wants to bring you everlasting life and joy and freedom in following him. Amen.